Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the Department of Health Management and Policy here at the University of New Hampshire, and today I'm pleased to share with you a special episode of The Forge. On October 7th, the College of Health and Human Services and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives hosted a special event at the University of New Hampshire, Shaping the Future, Leadership and Public Policy in Healthcare. We had two panels and a keynote speaker, and it was a terrific event. You are listening to the second panel, The Healthcare Organization's Role in Formulating Public Policy. This panel included Katie Fulham-Harris, Senior Vice President, Government Relations and Accountable Care Strategy, Maine Health, Richard Silveria, Chief Financial Officer, Boston Medical Center, and Matt Hood, Director, Government Relations, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. The panel was moderated by my colleague, Lucy Hodder, Director, Health Law and Policy, and Professor of Law, University of New Hampshire. The recordings of the other parts of the event are available on our website, healthleaderforge.org. And now, please enjoy Shaping the Future. I have the uh, pleasure and the distinct honor to introduce our next panelist. It is the one and only Lucy Hodder. She's the Director of Health Law and Policy Programs here at UNH, and is also a Professor of Law at the UNH Law School. Uh, historically, she has worked as Special Counsel for Governor Hassan, uh, as well as was on the leadership team at Rath Young and Pignatelli, a wonderful law firm based in Concord, my hometown. So please give a warm UNH welcome to your very own Lucy Hodder. Uh, thank you, everybody. It's wonderful to see all of you out here um, for what is going to be a terrific discussion, shaping the future, leadership, and public policy in healthcare. Um, but I definitely want to thank the um, Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives and our College of Health and Human Services for thinking about having this coalition of, of wonderful experts um, and a dialogue on healthcare and health policy. We also have students um, from a number of different departments, and it is just a thrill to have you all here with us. Um, I see a lot, our law students in the back, a number of HMP scholars, um, so thank you for coming. And I would be completely remiss if I did not thank my wonderful colleagues at the Institute um, for Health Policy and Practice, which is my um, home away from home. Um, a number of them here, our director, Joe Porter. So thank you so much uh, for being here as well. The, the intersection of policy and law um, and leadership is phenomenal at UNH, and that's a shining example. So I am here because I have an incredible group of panelists who are going to segue from the conversation we had this morning about sort of leadership and mentoring into really delving into what does it mean to be an executive at a large, large institution which has so much responsibilities to the community, to the states in which they serve, um, and, and are also driven by, in large part by the public dollars um, and the, the care they take of the community with the public dollars they receive. And we have with us, although they will introduce themselves further as they tell you who they are and where they're from, we have Rich Silveria, who's the Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Boston Medical Center. Um, he has corporate responsibilities for fi finance functions of a $2.3 billion health system with 511 academic medical center. Um, and he is 
also a long history in finance in healthcare institutions. Um, he worked for 12 years as the Director of Revenue Finance at Partners Healthcare System and was in charge of contracting at Lawrence General Hospital System. So we wanted to bring Massachusetts to New Hampshire because we really are a regional healthcare system and Rich is going to talk to us a little bit about public policy and financial leadership at Boston Medical Center. Um, we also have Katie Fulham-Harris, who's the Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Accountable Care Strategies at Maine Health. Um, she leads the system's public policy outreach and accountable care strategy, an incredible combination. She was previously the Director of Government Relations um, for Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Maine, and also um, the Assistant to the Commissioner for the Maine Department of Mental Health mental retardation and substance abuse services. Um, she also has a long history in healthcare, originally also a policy director at Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, and really understands from the beginning of her career to the present um, what it means to be integrated into a community that is directly driven by public policy. So she hails from Maine. Thank you for bringing Maine here today. And we have Matt Hood, our, our New Hampshire executive. Uh, he's the Director of Government Relations at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in Hanover, Lebanon, New Hampshire. And um, he's a graduate of the University of Connecticut Law School and was a state senator for a number of years in New Hampshire, so lived right in the middle of public policy. So today we're going to talk about a couple of things. I think we just to lay the groundwork for the policy conversation, we are, uh, since 2008, we have been living in healthcare through an economic downturn that has completely reshuffled the deck chairs for all of our institutions and the people the institutions serve. We've also been living since 2010 with the Affordable Care Act, the most transforming piece of federal legislation since Medicare many, many years ago. And we've been living to implement and change. We've now um, been living with it for six and a half years, well, six years, almost seven. Um, really intense implementation since 2014. So there has been a lot of change every year. I think this is the year when the most has happened in healthcare ever. And then, of course, there's next year where then the most in healthcare happens ever. Um, so that just seems to keep going on and on. Um, so we're in a really um, interesting stage, having um, worked in transformation, um, worked in an incredibly different economic environment, um, worked to serve a really transforming concept, which included including everyone having coverage, which was the first lift of the Affordable Care Act, and now trying to make sense of where we go from here. So what we're going to talk about today is who these organizations are, what their history is in public policy, what their connection is to public policy, why it matters for them. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what public policy issues really drive their day-to-day -day existence, how they managed that policy, how they talk about policy, how they direct an institution um, and institutions that are so large. Um, in the conversation with policymakers, so how it all happens. Um, so here we go. Um, why don't I start with Rich? Could you tell us a little bit about um, your organization's mission? Tell us what Boston Medical Center is about, what the uh, mission of the institution is, um, what its role is in Massachusetts. Sure. Um, Boston Medical Center goes back to the Civil War time uh, with Boston City and the University Hospital, Boston University. 
uh, were the uh, preceding entities that uh, became Boston Medical Center in 1996. We are New England's largest uh, safety net hospital and the largest trauma center in New England. Um, our motto is exceptional care without exception, so we take care of the underserved population. And even in the context of healthcare reform, even though Massachusetts has 98% coverage, there's still a lot to navigate in terms of getting people coverage. And it, we have an awful lot of people who aren't citizens who still need health care, who access us through our community health center. So Boston Medical Center health system is comprised of a billion one hospital, a 300,000 member health plan, 75,000 members are in WellSense in New Hampshire. Uh, the balance are in the uh, qualified health plan on the exchange is 37,000 and about 200,000 in Massachusetts Medicaid. Um, we have a 850 member uh, faculty practice foundation. They are also faculty for Boston University School of Medicine, so we are the teaching hospital for Boston University. Um, and there's about 1,200 uh, physicians on staff in the hospital. Um, and we have uh, 14 community health centers in the greater Boston area, largely in Boston, in the Dorchester, East Boston, Mattapan, and we take care of the, uh, the indigent. Um, when Massachusetts healthcare reform uh, was passed in 2006, Boston Medical Center in its financial counseling function uh, enrolled more people in either the health safety net, which I'll talk about uh, as we go on with this conversation, because Massachusetts has a history of, of, of trying to compensate for uncompensated care even prior to Massachusetts' instance of health care reform. But we enrolled more people in programs uh, than the rest of the state and other providers combined. So if we do, a, you know, we look at a Venn chart or a bubble chart in terms of uh, acute care expenditures uh, for hospitalization, we're like eight times bigger than anyone else. So it, we're a large uh, safety net hospital with that, uh, a special mission, mission that goes beyond acute care. Um, we do an awful lot. Um, we have a food pantry. We uh, have relationships with housing. Uh, we have relationships with uh, medical legal partners uh, to help people navigate either social services or, sadly, sometimes uh, violence or uh, other, other types of social issues. Um, and uh, so it's more, than, it's more than just the acute phase, but we try to also meet the person where they are. Uh, so I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, let me ask a couple follow-ups. Um, remind us um, from Massachusetts, the marketplace was well-established before the Affordable Care Act as a state-run marketplace, yes? So before the Affordable Care Act, the way that the state would finance uncompensated care, and it, it originated at Boston City Hospital. Tom Trailer, who just retired last week, goes back 38 years, was our VP of, uh, of Government Affairs. So it's a little bit terrifying to think about world without Tom Trailer. But he envisioned um, a taxation or an assessment scheme on your private payers that you'd pay 1.8% or whatever that assessment would be on your private payers, and that then you would have uncompensated care, so charity care, and it was based upon um, federal poverty income guidelines, so up to 400%. 200 and under would be full and partial up to 400%. And basically, you would pay your tax, and you'd either be a net payer in, meaning you had some charity care, and you offset your tax, but you're still a net payer in, or you're a net receiver. And you can imagine that Boston Medical Center is a net receiver uh, to the magnitude of about $100 million. Um, so that's kind of how the, and that started about 1985. And it's gone through various 
uh, incarnations uh, has been tethered to Medicaid at times, so there was a little blurring of lines between um, uh, healthy babies or um, EAEDC, uh, healthcare for, for, for blind and indigent patients. Sometimes Medicaid would pay parts of it and parts of it would be paid by the pool. Initially it was just a hospital tax and the payers would say, well, the, we fund the tax through our payments to providers in Massachusetts, uh, but then uh, it became a, a direct tax to the payers as well. So, so it was a $330 million pool, $30 million from the state, $150 from the providers, and $150 from the payers. And the federally qualified health centers also during that time frame got access to that, um, that pool as well. So we'll get into that a little bit more uh, later. I think one of the reasons why um, this panel will be very instructive for us is that while the previous panel talked about how uh, at, at the end of the day, medicine is about um, interactions with between humans from, from doctor to patient or, or nurse to patient or provider to patient or care manager to patient, um, without uh, the people who understand the ultimate financial ways these institutions work, there's not going to be a lot of that um, uh, down the road. So um, it's really important that we get into the ultimate um, financing of, of the entire system. And, and the beginning of the discussion is some of the innovations that have happened in Massachusetts and now um, New Hampshire and maybe Maine. <laughs> so um, Katie, can you tell us a little bit about what the mission of um, Maine Health is and your role? Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, Maine Health is Maine's largest health care system. We have eight acute care hospitals serving um, what we now call local health service regions. So we're really trying to move away from the term hospital and really talk about all of the care that we provide, which expands from primary care through end-of-life care. Uh, we have nursing homes um, and, and long-term care facilities. We also very um, interestingly and rare, it's very rare, I know of actually no other system that has a fully integrated um, behavioral health care delivery system within the organization. So we have behavioral health care services from community services all the way through a psychiatric hospital that is integrated into Maine Health. We serve about a million patients in the state of Maine that are in 11 of Maine's southernmost counties. So we're in the most uh, populous area in the state. And we also serve Carroll County in New Hampshire. So um, we have a Memorial Hospital, which is a critical access hospital in New Hampshire in North Conway, um, is part of our system as well. For our hospitals, we range from three critical access hospitals. So they have 25 beds or fewer. Um, and all the way to a 650-bed teaching hospital at Maine Medical Center, uh, which has an affiliation with Tufts. We actually have a, a really nice affiliation with Tufts Medical School in which we have Maine students and, and students from across the country, but focused on Maine students who have a curriculum. They spend their first two years at Tufts Medical School and their last two years on the ground in Maine learning health care and with an emphasis on rural health care in Maine. We also have a, a research facility, um, Maine Medical Center Research Institute, which is integrated into our system um, at the same time as well. Uh, Maine Health's mission is working together so our patients are the healthiest in our communities are the healthiest in the country. And we take that very seriously. Maine has not chosen to develop its own public health infrastructure. 
in a formal way. And the healthcare system, delivery systems in Maine have really taken that on with Maine Health taking the lead. And we work actually across the state to pro provide what would normally be public health functions such as tobacco cessation, Im childhood immunizations, um, and, and public health, those right now we're actually embarking upon um, an integrated uh, approach to addressing the opioid crisis in the state as well. So public health is something that we feel very strongly about um, that we have, we have taken on as part of our mission. Finally, I think the, the last piece that I would mention is, is Maine Health's real commitment to ensuring that um, we are um, working, we are collabor collaborating with our communities. We are part of our communities. And we have local boards at each of our organizations. We are um, a, a system that is, has three affiliates and eight, uh, three affiliate hospitals, eight uh, acute care hospitals, and one um, psychiatric hospital, as I mentioned. Each of those hospitals has its own governing board, and each of those governing boards really reflects the, the community. And we feel strongly about ensuring that um, we are part of the community and the community is part of us. Thank you, Katie. That was, and, and just um, by way of backdrop, has, Maine has not expanded Medicaid to date, correct? <clears throat> no. So, um, so Maine is now one of the last, I think there are 29 or 30 states left that have not, or no, 33 states have adopted Medicaid expansion. So we're one of the, those that have not, um, and we are really paying the price for that um, as a healthcare system. It's creating challenges we serve every patient who walks in the door regardless of their ability to pay. And we serve them through primary, from primary care all the way through end of life care as needed. And we are really struggling at this point. Uh, our healthcare system is paying for the Affordable Care Act, but we're not reaping the benefits of the Affordable Care Act. And it's creating some real financial pressures on, on us that Rich would certainly understand. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Matt, could you tell us a little bit about the mission of Dartmouth-Hitchcock? Sure. <clears throat> thanks, Lucy, and um, thanks, everyone, for coming today. It's uh, nice to be here. There are also lots of people in this room uh, who have been intimately involved in health policy development, um, and so I, I uh, appreciate the perspective that I'm certain I'll add to the conversation later. Uh, so Dartmouth-Hitchcock is an academic health system. Um, what does that mean? Our, our mission is to advance health through research, education, clinical practice, and community partnership. So we do that, there are obviously multiple channels. We're affiliated with um, Dartmouth College's School of Medicine, the Geisel School of Medicine. There's the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, which is one of 45 uh, NCI-designated comprehensive cancer centers, uh, also located in, on the Lebanon campus. CHAD is the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which is a, hospital, a children's hospital within the hospital with roughly 30 uh, unique uh, pediatric subspecialties. In addition to the 396-bed uh, hospital uh, in Lebanon uh, and clinics, uh, there are 24 multi-special multi-specialty multi clinics, excuse me, across New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, and as a uh, sole community provider and uh, rural referral center, um, I also consider DH a safety net for New Hampshire and Vermont region, um, providing 
upwards uh, towards 200 million in community benefits on an annual basis. Um, to the large extent, and this goes to the um, organizations affecting public policy, um, I view our, my role, government relations, um, in helping to advance health uh, through the last part of our mission, uh, community partnerships. Um, you'll often hear people at Dartmouth-Hitchcock talk about creating a sustainable health system, and uh, it's a fair question as to what that means. Uh, for us, uh, it means not focusing exclusively on illness, but on population health, transition from fee-for-service um, reimbursement to value-based care, um, one that's focused on quality and cost, not number of procedures that are, are given or done, performed, um, and aligning health services so that they're more efficient. Uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock has affiliates, uh, affiliations excuse me, with several hospitals in uh, New Hampshire and Vermont, including Alice Peck Day in Lebanon, Cheshire Medical Center, uh, Mount Escutney Hospital and Health Center uh, in um, Windsor, Vermont, New London Hospital, and the Visiting Nurses and Hospice of Vermont and New Hampshire. So that gives you Thank a you. thumbnail sketch of Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Thank you, Matt. And um, because there are a lot of uh, us in various stages of career um, in the audience, could you just briefly talk about um, your own uh, um, path to where you are now, how you got involved in healthcare and ultimately um, health policy? at your institution? Sure, in terms of uh, my path uh, to CFO, it's, it's certainly a non-traditional path. Um, I started out as a science major. I thought I might want to go uh, into medicine. I was a biology major. Um, about sophomore, into my sophomore year, I took a, a computer programming class. I really liked it. Took a uh, business class. Decided to finish my degree, but also um, did uh, an extra semester and got a teaching certificate so I could teach biology and chemistry. Um, my sisters were nurses, and I was just really excelled at science, so I um, got a job uh, right out of college uh, in, in IT. I worked for five years in IT, installed a general ledger system from paper, um, installed lab systems and pharmacy systems, so I really got to understand how kind of the, the patients and data flowed through a, um, it was a, a three facility community uh, network. So it was two community hospitals and one health center. Uh, from there, I went to Lawrence General and pivoted into finance. And uh, over that uh, time frame, I, I, I took on uh, IT, and uh, we had a PHO and an IPA, and I had uh, managed care contracting, and we started a woman's health center. And, uh, and it was kind of capitation 1.0, probably predates many people in this room. But uh, in, in the 1990s, we started to think about risk. Um, I was there for 10 years, uh, got a lot of great experience, and then went to uh, Partners Healthcare. Uh, so we're going to talk about networking, but uh, the way I got the job at Partners Healthcare was I presented at HFMA and then got a call and ended up at Partners Healthcare for about 12 years and basically ran a shared services organization uh, for the system that was $4 billion, so Lawrence General is about $250 million as a whole system and went to $4 billion. When I left, it was just about $10 billion. Uh, about a billion in research, and uh, about a hundred million in research at, at Boston Medical Center, so much smaller. But um, but it was a great uh, it was a great uh, learning experience for me because I had to kind of deal with setting policy uh, in terms of you know revenue uh, policies, reserve positions, supporting government advocacy, uh, Massachusetts healthcare reform. I was uh, supporting uh, Matt Fishman and Tom Glenn in that. Um, and uh, then w was there for 12 years. I got an opportunity to kind of get back closer to 
the mission. When I was at Lawrence General, it was very much like a safety net hospital. And um, got an opportunity to go to BMC kind of as its darkest hour. It was uh, potentially going to lose $177 million. So why would, uh, why would anyone want to do that? Um, especially when you're at kind of Big Blue, the partner's uh, facility. But it was an I saw it as an important mission, and that was moving to me, and that is a noble mission. And uh, been there six years. We were able to turn it around. Uh, couldn't say we did it all on our own. We had to go back to the government because, in theory, with health care reform, they said, well, we don't need these waivers. We don't need these supplemental funds. And basically cut reimbursement by about $200 million. Um, so the, the government kind of met us halfway with about 90 and we had to re-engineer to get the other. Uh, some of it was top-line growth, some of it was cost. Um, but uh, so anyways, that's, that's kind of my story. Um, that coming into to, to BMC was my first, uh, my first role as a CFO, and the reason I did it is because I could be a CFO of a system that had a, a health plan. I had the managed care background, so um, and doing the contract settlements at, at partners and, and really get to, to run my own shop. Thank you, Rich. Yep. Great story. Katie. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are with Maine Health. Um, so that is a, it's an interesting journey. Um, I, I've always loved policy and um, did a lot. I ended up in, at college in New York City and did work in policy there, um, but primarily on the education side. Um, when I graduated, I worked on child care policy and wound up back in Maine and through networking that had occurred in New York City, got offered a job working on, in the legislature, doing, doing lobbying work in the legislature, and learned the government relations side. Um, it wasn't on anything that um, was very exciting to me. It was around auto insurance and those kinds of areas. But, but I got to learn um, the, the legislative process, and I loved it. And the Planned Parenthood job opened up, and I was able to, to move into that, um, which I was one of the better jobs I ever had. I mean, talk about working on something with a people with a lot of passion on both sides of the issue. Um, it, was, it was exciting. Um, and from there, I decided I needed to go back to school, enrolled in a master's program, that um, I was quickly bored in, to be quite honest, and got an internship in the governor's office. The governor had just been elected, and from there moved right into working in uh, the Department of Mental Health, Mental Retardation, and Substance Abuse Services, which was a turnaround job for that department. And that's probably the job where I learned the most in my career, um, and I would encourage everyone. If you have the opportunity to work in either a legislative function or if you're interested in policy or in a, in a governor's office or in, in one of the administrations, you learn so much. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's constant um, and it's really hard and it's a lot of, lot of long hours, but there's just, it's a learning opportunity that um, really can't be compared. Um, and from that was also a burnout job. So from there, I went to uh, Anthem. You know, I think I had a, another small job in between, but ended up at Anthem, which was also really helpful. So I'd gone from a small nonprofit at Planned Parenthood to uh, state government and then to the large for-profit sector and got to learn so much about each of those sectors. Um, 
but and was really pretty committed to health policy at that point, um, and then from Anthem to this job. So it's been a long journey along the way, but um, each piece has really built on the other pieces. Thank you, Katie, and I agree. Um, so I, I'm hearing networking has been critically important in your Absolutely. path, um, following your passion, and also learning how the policy side really works as you go in and out of um, government and back into the private side. Very much so. And Matt, I think you're a wonderful illustration of this. Why don't you tell us what you how um, you ended up where you are? So, uh, unlike Rich, um, I was absolutely disinclined towards math and science, and so unfortunately, the the genetic um, opportunity of my mother, who was a midwife, and my brother, who was an orthopedic surgeon, did not pass on to me. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, I gravitated towards the humanities um, and law uh, after graduation. So I um, practiced for a few years in a corporate transactional practice and decided that uh, while uh, worthwhile endeavor was not for me and what my interests were, which were much more towards policy um, and affecting uh, policy writ large. So. Um, after doing some work implementing healthcare um, projects overseas, uh, I came back to the to the states um, and uh, decided to do this uh, thing called run for office in uh, New Hampshire, the state of New Hampshire. Um, it, it it's uh, there were 400, by the way. So uh, in the state uh, in the House of Representatives uh, general court, and so. Um, lots of people do. If you live long enough in the state of New Hampshire, you'll serve in the New Hampshire House. Um, at least that's what the, the speaker, when I was um, doing my orientation, told me. So uh, I think it's true. Um, my advice during the networking um, was much like yours, it, but it wasn't serve. It wasn't uh, work in the government. It was serve in the government because you can. You have that opportunity in New Hampshire and, and other places. Certainly work there too, if, um, if you'd like to make more than hundred dollars a year. Um, <laughs> so uh, I then, as Lucy indicated, I, uh, a seat opened up in the Senate when there are 24 uh, members in the Senate in the state of New Hampshire. Um, the pay is not substantially more, but the uh, responsibility and exposure to things certainly is. Uh, and it was among the most rewarding work that I've ever done. Uh, and I would genuinely encourage people to do that. Uh, you have an opportunity to absolutely directly influence uh, policy, you vote on it, uh, you uh, argue against it, you argue for it, uh, which is which is very different um, than the role in the external world where you're trying to influence the policymakers who are voting, you're, you're uh, advocating from the outside. Um, but all of that being said, uh, an opportunity at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock came up in the pol healthcare policy arena. Um, and I um, had just started a new family and needed to make more than $100 a year. And uh, those two things meshed well. And so I've been at Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, for five years now, actually this month. So that's where I got here. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I want to go back, um, Rich, to something you brought up, which was uh, your arrival at Boston Medical Center when they were running uh, a potential of losing $117 million. I think that's what you said. 177. 177, sorry. <laughs> $177 million through um, what was obviously a policy-related issue. Can you tell us a little bit about how important that was to um, BMC, um, what the issue was, and how you brought the organization um, to address it? Yeah, so to be fair, um, I started in December of 2010. Um, the wheels, in terms of negotiating with the government, were well in motion. But basically, um, we had to deconstruct the problem 
in terms of our Medicaid rates, the cost of providing the uh, Medicaid services, Medicare, um, uh, and their rates, and our uncompensated care burden, and then look at kind of the prior uh, framework for, for compensation and to, from the health safety net and other sources of funding, and including supplemental payments, which basically came through uh, CMS through a Medicaid waiver application. So you basically are waiving the traditional Medicaid uh, rules and the federal match. And so um, the state basically has to petition CMS to get a waiver. And the state um, erroneously felt, well, if everyone has insurance, then we really don't need to be advocating as much for the likes of Boston Medical Center or Lawrence General Hospital or Cambridge Health Alliance. And so we uh, initially had to educate the state um, that uh, we still had these needs. And coverage uh, was emerging in terms of uh, what they call connector care, which is a subsidized exchange um, plan, and, uh, and, and, and Commonwealth Choice, Commonwealth Care, I'm sorry, Commonwealth uh, Choice was you'd partially pay for that. But the rates were based upon Medicaid because the way that the exchange uh, started in Massachusetts is they had the Medicaid uh, MCOs, the managed care organizations, underwrite that business. So you were working with a Medicaid rate, which at the time it moved around, but was pretty much 60 cents on the cost dollar. I might get close to 68 at different points, but uh, that's about as, as good as it ever got. And when you're at, when you're at uh, Boston Medical Center, you're at 44% Medicaid, Medicaid and managed Medicaid, 33% um, Medicare, and the balance is charity, health safety net. You have about 15% commercial. Wow. And 5% uh, various and sundry auto accidents, workers' comp, self-pay. Uh, so uh, the way that the, historically the, the um, healthcare financing works is that the, the hidden taxes that the private payers pay above, so you have a margin to subsidize the losses that you have on public payers. But there's no way that on 15% of the business that you could cover that. So we always had these waivers. So, so Tom Trailer, Kate Walsh, who was uh, a colleague at, uh, at Partners, she was a COO at, at, at the Brigham, and then myself, when we got there, we basically framed out, kind of over time, kind of temporized the various changes that occurred in the financing and the exposure that we had. And they went to the federal government and came up with something called a Delivery System Transformation Initiative, or DIST. And what that was is to really start to pivot towards population health. This, the, the, the one thing that the federal government does not want to do is to pay in a waiver because the state won't adequately pay rates to providers. So you have to get creative. Even though we all know that the state is paying below cost, you advocate with the state because they have a problem and we have a problem we have to work together. That's the first thing you have to acknowledge when you're working with the government is to acknowledge their problem and then figure out ways to help them solve their problem um, together. And so uh, in, this, in, in, th in those waivers, the Department of Public Health, the Department of Mental Health also receives money. So the state was also uh, very interested in achieving this waiver. Um, so uh, through uh, advocacy at, uh, with the governor's office, um, with Beacon Hill, the state government, 
they were the, basically the, the, the ambassadors to the feds. Now, we have lobbyists and we have relationships. Senator Kerry was there. But we don't have a direct um, a voice with CMS. Um, but we were able to get that, and we got $90 million and we were able to, when I got there, I didn't know if we were going to trip our bonds, because you have to have a certain free cash above your maximum debt services. You have to be 110% throw off that much cash on your operations, and we weren't going to do it. And so it wouldn't be like you were bankrupt, but you'd lose control to, to, to consultants. So um, it was interesting. I, I, when, I, when I first uh, started talking to Kate, it appeared that uh, that $90 million was largely secure, and I took the job only to find out that while CMS was uh, willing to, to go along with this, the, uh, the government accounting office did not necessarily approve it yet. So that was a little wrinkle. Um, and uh, that finally cleared it, uh, clarified itself around December 31st. So I was there about a month. But, uh, but then after that, it was really working with uh, the, the, the rest of the organizations to drive improvements uh, and performance going forward. So it sounds like, Rich, in this in incredibly potentially dev devastating situation, it was developing a story with your leadership that was really a true one, dissecting what was going on in the institution and what needed to happen, and then listening to the state, letting them know how you could help them with a solution, and CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid on the federal level, right? really really trying to work as a partnership, it sounds like. Absolutely. So you look at historically how the, the waiver monies came in and what they were allocated towards in terms of, 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 of floating the, the state budget and pointing out where would we advocate together how they would benefit as well. Um, and so that's typically how you do it. Or, you know, the first thing you have to recognize is that they don't have every lever. It's generally unpopular to raise taxes. Um, so you really have to meet them where they're at and give them uh, alternatives uh, that are palatable, um, that where they win and we win, and it's also politically um, palatable. Um, and we'll get in, in a minute a little bit into how, how, how that story trickled down into the organization. Katie, can you tell us a little bit? I know you have a, a story in Maine in dealing with um, the institution and, and a lot of the big financial issues, but can you tell us a little bit about what's happened on the opioid crisis there in Maine and, and Maine Medical's involvement in that um, policy issue? Absolutely. So that's actually a good news story, which is um, one of very few, I think, that we've seen in, the, in Maine in the last few years uh, at our legislature. Um, Maine, like all states, um, and I'm sure certainly New Hampshire and Massachusetts, is facing a massive opioid epidemic um, public health crisis. Uh, we have seen actually even just this year, the first six months of this, this year, an, a 50 percent increase in deaths uh, due to opioid overdose, mostly from heroin and fentanyl. Um, but also recognizing that we own a lot of, uh, a lot of this problem in that people were starting to get addicted through prescriptions. And um, the, the major players came together, major players being uh, the governor's office and the Maine Medical Association and the really the two largest healthcare systems, Maine, Medical, um, Maine Health and Eastern Maine Healthcare Systems, along with the Maine Hospital Association. And we worked together to craft what has become now the most restrictive opioid prescribing law in the country. 
in most instances, hospitals, physicians will, uh, will shy away, to put it mildly, from legislating medicine, and rightfully so. It's not a place that we're comfortable. Medicine is constantly evolving, and the last thing we want is to pass a law that has to get changed three years later when technology changes or, or as, as the healthcare standards change. But in this instance, our physicians were asking for help from, leg from legislators to give, to give them the tools they needed to push back against patients who are demanding increased levels of opioids. Granted, physicians had, not through any fault of their own, um, been prescribing the opioids over time. Uh, they thought that they were safe, uh, had been told they were safe by the FDA and by Purdue Pharma that was um, the original, that was uh, the manufacturer back in 1996. Um, but we had come to a place where it was very clear that they were highly addictive, that there was a huge crisis, and that they needed help. So we all worked together um, to craft this law that took effect on July 29th of, of this summer, um, and it's actually rolling out over the next, uh, the next year. Um, but it is go it's providing physicians with accountability and with the tools they need to, put, to say to their patients, I can't prescribe at this level to you anymore. We need to have a new conversation, and we need to start tapering you down. Um, we'll, it remains to be seen how this is going to play out in the long term. I think a lot of us have a lot of concerns. There are not enough treatment resources in the state um, to address those who have addiction to opioids, um, whether they be to prescriptions that are being um, appropriately given to them or whether they be to heroin. Um, and the last thing we want is to have people turning to the street when they've been on prescription medications. So there are going to be some consequences, I think, for, from this law. But the bottom line is we had 15,000 people in the state of Maine who are being prescribed more than 100 milligram morphine milligram equivalents, um, which is in and of itself a pretty high dosage. And so we know that we, were, we had a major uh, prescription and prescribing problem. And this law, I think, is going to provide us with the opportunity to really, really do what we need to do to um, educate and to address it. Um, so it it's, was a nice opportunity to bring all the organizations together and work collaboratively on a unanimous bill. And it sounds like you were involved through Maine Health from, from we, the ground up. Very, right. very much so. Thank you. Um, Matt, tell us a little bit about um, the story at Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, where between research um, passage of the ACA and implementation, Dartmouth has played such a key policy role in developing one of the premier um, payment reform models that we know well now. Sure. Um, so Dartmouth 
Hitchcock was, I would say, an early adopter of payment reform in general and ACOs in particular. And um, Elliot Fisher, who is the uh, director of the Dartmouth Institute for uh, Health Policy and Clinical Practice, is is one of the people to whom accountable care organization is uh, attributed as um, co coining the, the term, so to speak. Um, and his work with colleagues to do research around accountable care organizations actually uh, did end up as a demonstration potential in the Affordable Care Act. Um, not surprisingly, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock CEO Jim Weinstein, uh, who was previously the head of TDI, or the Dartmouth Institute, um, was equally supportive of accountable care organizations. And so Dartmouth-Hitchcock has been in, in the accountable care organization world for a while. Um, started with um, the physician uh, group demonstration, uh, led to um, the Pioneer Project, which was, I believe, 32 organizations originally, um, and then uh, is actually involved in three commercial ACOs in the state of New Hampshire, uh, as well as One Care Vermont, um, which is a uh, ACO with the University of Vermont Medical System, um, uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and um, some other additional providers. So. Lucy didn't ask this question, but I'll answer it, uh, which is to say um, we did leave. Uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock did, of course, leave the Pioneer ACO uh, in 2015. And I, um, I think it's an important example to talk about because it goes to how policy gets affected. Uh, and so um, what we were finding... Uh, and I, I actually love the expression that uh, Lucy gave me uh, in respect to talking about the substance of this, which is use big crayons for the substance and talk in more detail about the process. I just thought that was a great way of describing this. So I'm going to use some big crayons when I talk about the metrics um, that CMS uses and how Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, was affected by that, which is to say we were achieving the quality goals that were set um, and saving Medicare money. Um, but we still had to pay a penalty. Uh, on the risk side uh, because we weren't reaching the targets that were set uh, for all of the participating entities. And so I think we made money, we're on the plus side the first year, but then on the negative side in, in two subsequent years. Um, and w one of the things that came out was that if you're a low utilizing region or you're low utilizing uh, or efficient healthcare provider, then you have less room to make gains as opposed to if you're a high utilizing region and you're an excessively expensive system, you have more uh, more room for improvement, more low-hanging fruit, if you will. Uh, I think I thought the best analogy that was used was from our population health uh, EVP, uh, Rob Green, who said, it's like, it's easier for a 12-mile runner to get down to, to lose a minute than it is for a five-minute miler to get down to a minute. Um, and I think some of those things bore themselves out with respect to uh, the Pioneer ACO metrics. Is that, it's unfortunate, but we are not writing off accountable care organizations at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. We're still involved in the ones I was just talking about. We're actually um, contemplating the next generation ACO at this time. We're also contemplating uh, Vermont has a very exciting new payment model called the all-payer model, which I, I won't get into for time purposes, but we're also talking about going in with UVM and another um, provider organization into that model. So uh, it what it did do is it provided us an opportunity to go to CMS and to go to HHS and say, look, these metrics don't work, and here's why. And you're seeing this with other providers in the region. It's not just Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, 
Thank you, by the way, for saying that. I feel like I'm an apologist. Uh, I don't mean to be. Um, and the, some of the metrics have started to change for next generation. And so some of the metrics will continue to change for the next iterations of this. So I, I actually think it's a positive story about um, while we're no longer in the Pioneer ACO, um, hopefully the next iterations we'll be able to engage with going forward that, that actually reflect the, the, um, uh, the relative uh, performance of the entities in the ACO. Thanks. Thank you. So, <laughs> uh, you know, as institutions and, and people in them, you are creating the stories that result in outreach and influence um, in major, major policy uh, movements, both at state government and federal government. Um, and then you live with them, um, for better or for worse. Um, tell us a little bit about sort of organizationally, um, and you know we'll just keep going in a circle. Rich, I'll start with you. Organizationally, how do you talk about policy internally and develop the bench strength to manage policy issues? And then how do you send out that policy message externally? Big question. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm more on the periphery than my colleagues here as a CFO. Um, but I do, uh, I do a lot of governance work within the organization. So I have 12 finance committee meetings. I also present at a board meetings, but I actually manage the finance committee. I have four audit and compliance committee meetings and four investment committee meetings. So I have 20 meetings a year. So I educate my board on things like uninsured uh, or redeterminations or whatever whatever is going on in the state. Uh, so for instance, um, the, uh, the Massachusetts had difficulty rolling out the ACA in 2014. They used the same vendor that the federal government, CSI, used. And so we had a, very, a great difficulty enrolling people. And many of the enrollees ended up in a state kind of auto assignment pool. They had coverage, but didn't really have a lens on whether they should be a Medicaid or an exchange product, et cetera. So we made it through that. We enrolled patients. We, I invested in, in financial counselors. We made sure we could, in, uh, from a process perspective, look at schedules, see who didn't have insurance or who needed to be counseled. We would, we would invest in that. But then the state, uh, as part of uh, participation in Medicaid, has to redetermine at a certain frequency whether people are still eligible for Medicaid. So this year, the state en masse had to do that because they couldn't do it during the time where they were rolling out the ACA. Um, so from a, from a process perspective, I'd work with uh, MHA, uh, where you have your, 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 your New Hampshire uh, Association here, but you work with MHA, talk about That's the, the issues. Mass Hospital Association. Yeah, Mass Hospital, sorry. Uh, Mass Hospital Association. Make sure the industry understands what needs to happen, have them advocate to the state in terms of what might be onerous in terms of the amount of administrata you have to, but basically we would help the Medicaid department re-enroll all these patients. And as you might imagine, if you've ever seen a Medicaid application, it is a 26-page application. Um, many of the people that are on Medicaid, sadly, uh, some of them are homeless, uh, many of them have uh, other problems uh, poverty, whatever, uh, joblessness, and they might not have access to their records. So we have to put a lot of resource and even at times hire uh, firms that actually go out to the homes and interview them and get their records and do that. So that's something that, you know, from a process perspective, I'm making sure that we're making investments uh, so that we can get our patients covered and that we can uh, continue our mission. 
Additionally, the state is looking to put a, uh, a change in the way that they manage the populations um, going forward. So one of the, the uh, initiatives is looking at duly eligible um, patients. So uh, folks that are disabled, so under 65, um, disabled on Medicare and Medicaid. So you get Medicare when you're younger because you're disabled. Or people that are older and indigent, Medicare and Medicaid. And they've been working with us to try to get them into a more of a population health framework. So the, uh, the younger population, they call that one care. Um, the federal government, uh, much like the, uh, the, the ACO comments, the pioneer ACO, they basically took 25% off the average adjusted area per capita cost and said, we're going to take that savings right away and we're going to assume that you're going to manage utilization better because these people are costing the federal government $4,000 per person per month. So it's a huge expenditure and these people are homeless, they're multiple disabilities. Um, but we felt like we couldn't manage those people. Um, many of them have huge uh, behavioral health issues, um, paranoia, schizophrenia, psycho psychoses. These are very difficult patients to manage. But we did work with the state and say, look, we will start to offer a senior care options. Um, can't hear. Okay. Is this, is this on? Is this on? Doesn't seem to be on. Okay. Um, so I'll stand Can up. Can you hear? Can you hear now? Okay. Is it on? Okay. All right. So we, we offered a senior care opera. Yeah. Oh, it's, sorry. It's very different. Yeah. Okay. We offered a senior care plan uh, in collaboration with the state. And that's a, it's a, a slow ramp up. You have to go door to door and talk to, uh, talk to elders and say, would you like to change your traditional Medicare plan where you can go anywhere, et cetera. And so we are working with the state on, on those types of uh, activities. And I, I don't know if you want me to talk about the current waiver now or wait till later in the program. I think maybe we'll wait till later okay. in the program because I right. want to make sure we have room for questions for everybody. Okay. Can everyone hear now? Just if, if you can't hear, just get my attention, jump up and down. Katie, can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of how, how you bring the discussion into the organization and outside as well? I mean, it sounds like you have, um, on, on some of these big hospital financial issues, you, uh, you must translate all the way down to the people who are knocking on the door in order to make and affect the change in coverage. Rich, it sounds like from your experience. Um, Katie, tell us a little bit about on the, um, how you manage these type of policy issues from a um, governance perspective. Thank you. Um, so I guess I'd start by saying that all health care is personal. So when I think about affecting change at the external, in the external environment, every legislator, every policymaker um, that I've ever encountered really goes back to their own experience with the healthcare system whether it be anecdotal or personal, their own experience. Um, and that it tends to be the basis for their decisions. And you can provide them with data that counters that experience, but it's very difficult for, to have them change their minds on a policy based upon data alone. So taking that sort of fundamental tenet and, and looking at how we affect change um, 
at the in, and using the internal resources of our organization to help affect that change um, is really important. I do uh, a number of different, um, I have a number of different ways that I go about doing that uh, in terms of internal communications to build, um, to, to educate people, but also to build the necessary capacity that we need to affect change on the external environment. Very importantly, we rely upon our clinicians. So we have, I've developed committees, a clinical advisory committee and a, an advisory committee that's made up of finance people, the administrators, CEOs primarily, um, that help, uh, I would say, shape the direction that we're going to take on policy issues, provide feedback on the policy issues, and in turn can serve as voices for us on policy issues with policymakers. So those committees meet um, periodically, usually every two weeks, to review the status of different, uh, different bills, um, different policy issues that we're tackling, and it builds um, a capacity that is critical as we work to affect the external environment. And then the story that we tell has to relate to the stories that those individual policymakers know on their own personal level. So I, I hesitate to say this in, in an academic setting. Data is important, however, it is not everything. Um, so um, I, I think that we, we work to find those, the right voices and the right stories that will connect with people um, at a very personal level. Um, I, and to be consistent. So ideology doesn't play a strong role or it doesn't play uh, an effective role when you look at, at changing healthcare policy. The person that you need to influence today on one issue may be opposed to you on that issue, and you may need to influence that same person on something entirely different tomorrow in which they are going to be supportive. So making sure that you don't burn bridges is absolutely critical, that you stick to the facts um, and that the stories back up the facts, and yes, having data that underlies it is pretty critical too. Um, and that actually goes on the internal as well as the external. I think on the internal side, the piece that's the hardest to work with is, is people's cynicism about um, the political environment and trying to convince um, our, we have 20,000 employees uh, in the state of Maine, and trying to convince them that their voice actually does matter um, that they can have a role in, in changing the environment in which we live um, is something that um, it, it's, the, the cynicism is pervasive. And I'm finding, I think, in this current political environment, it's particular, it's worse than it's been in a very long time. Um, but just sticking to the facts and telling the stories internally and externally um, seems to resonate. So just so everyone heard, data still matters. It's just how you use the data <laughs> to tell the story. The story matters absolutely. Story matters. And, and a consistent story told over and over again um, 
sounds like it's been really important in your experience. Critical. Um, and the trust, b being able to tell a story that you can back up in a way that the policymakers trust you, even if you've been on opposite sides. So I actually have the words trust, culture, and community written down from the first panel this morning, because those are the same elements. The elements that make a healthy workplace environment are the same elements that make a healthy community. And, and all of our representatives, and including our federal representatives, live in those communities. So it really is, as, as healthcare institutions, we are part of the community. And that is something that we have to remember um, and, and pay attention to. Um, thank you. Matt, I'm going to turn to you and then open it up for questions after. So I don't know if we have our um, uh, microphone people around. But tell us, you've been both on the receiving end of, of, of people making health care policy arguments, and you've also now been on the telling end. Tell us a little bit about how that's been for you um, as an experience and what we can educate um, in everybody in the room about uh, the nuances that are involved with that. So um, I, I, I think Katie really uh, talked about two important points, the data and informa information. I mean, it has to guide the decision making, uh, whether you are making the decision, hopefully, or influencing the trying to influence the decision. Um, and so uh, just two of the things that Dartmouth-Hitchcock does to try to have that go back and forth, meaning the internal and external audiences are uh, we have health policy grand rounds, which are modeled after the clinical grand rounds that clinicians have. And so we'll bring in policy people to speak to contemporary issues, speak to as long as they're healthcare policy focused and not um, electioneering or uh, campaign pitch, we, uh, we're happy to have everybody. And we bring in everybody. Um, and so that's really a way to highlight the importance that it gives us a chance to re reiterate the importance of um, having conversations with your elected officials about healthcare policy matters because that affect the hospital, that affect the hospital community. So that's one thing that we've done. Um, I also really like the idea of adding providers to the committees that you're having because one of the challenges that I find um, is, and there are 9,500, there aren't 20,000 people in the, in the Dartmouth-Hitchcock system, but um, lots of people are comfortable speaking to their legislators, and we want to somehow make sure that all voices are, are speaking the same language. Uh, that's really important because, again, it's the story um, that you're trying to tell them. Um, and the other uh, thing that I would say is there's something called Project Medical Education, which uh, the AAMC has uh, been an advocate of and Dartmouth-Hitchcock Dartmouth has done for a long time, which is to bring in public policy uh, opinion leaders, not just elected officials, um, executive officials, to say this is what a day in the life is like for um, an academic medical center. This is what um, your tuition bills would be if you're um, a graduate of the medical school. Uh, this is what it's like to round. So we literally have them round with clinicians the next morning. Um, and that's a way to raise awareness because that's part of the education, uh, again, that takes place. Um, I don't think I could add more to the uh, comment about whether whether this is coming from the outside or receiving from the from the inside is trust. Uh, you only get to be wrong once uh, with a legislator, um, and then community. Uh, I, I think that's been covered, so I would say that. Okay, great, thank you. Um, do we have questions um, in the audience for our panel? Anybody have a question? Now's your time. I was ready for one. Um, 
then I will follow up and answer. You may also have questions for each other. Tell us how you and these important policy um, issues, you've talked a little bit about engaging the community. Um, how do you really go out and engage your community, the people who are, are seeking care at your hospital, to find out where they are, what they need, um, and, and what the sort of most relevant issue facing them is in the care that you're providing? Yes, Rich. So I think um, most of us uh, have to do a community health needs assessment as part of the uh, Schedule H of the 990, which came about uh, through the Accountable Care Act. So you, that's a pretty rigorous process. You engage with the community. You have focus groups. And uh, you know, I'm sure you know, all the, uh, the health providers up here have a myriad of programs that you kind of outline uh, in, in a narrative in your Schedule H and your 990, which is a publicly available um, tax return. Um, the other thing I would say is that, um, and then maybe to build on kind of the trust in the data, is that you also, when you engage with the community, and I'm going to use the legislature or lobbyists or people of influence, your board members who might have a voice with the governor or whomever, is to try to frame the issue in an empirical way that is palatable to the legislative process. So for instance, when we were looking at the, uh, the DIS-T, the 90 million, what differentiated BMC from others and give them empirical public, publicly available data that they could talk to their constituents as why one facility is in one cohort and another is, in, is not in that cohort. So you might, so this is where the finance, so I talked about a process part of how we engage uh, in policy, making sure people are, are, are engaged. But we also do the analytic part, which is, you know, what's the way of presenting the cost report to show that we're underpaid on our costs within, within following the rules, but showing that. But also, one thing that we did is we looked at um, stratifications of providers, so teaching hospitals, academic medical centers, community hospitals, critical access providers, and we say, well, what differentiates them and how would we maybe characterize them? So one thing that emerged when Tom and I were looking at the data is that we were more than two standard deviations above the mean in terms of our Medicaid payer mix. And we were more than two standard deviations below the mean in our commercial payer mix. Then we said, okay, let's screen the rest of these cohorts and say who falls in that. And we had seven providers. And so we were able to go to the legislature and say, this is a, this is a frame that you could look at as a way that this is how you differentiate. So I think, and, and making sure that your data is valid and that it, you, it is trustworthy and it is replicable. And I would say that's another way that we engage mm -hmm. uh, and support colleagues like the folks to my, to my left. So let me ask you, Katie, what steps, um, if, if you are uh, a new executive at uh, Maine Health and you want to get involved in the public policy advocacy discussion, what steps or what advice would you give someone who's new in their career to get involved in these type of conversations, um, given how much they impact um, the community and the institution? That's a great question. Um, I think that will vary depending on, on where you work, but there are two things I would say. If you want to get involved through, um, through the organization for which you work and to ensure that you're aligned <laughs> and your positions are aligned with that organization, um, it's definitely important to interact with the either Matt or Katie uh, in that organization. We are always seeking people who are interested in engaging because it's like pulling teeth sometimes, honestly. Um, 
on the and the other piece I would say is is so we're we're we'd be thrilled to have people step up and say how can how can I get engaged? Also, the community piece is really important. So engagement in community organizations. Um, whether they be public health organizations. We have quite a few employees who are engaged in public health organizations throughout the state that also do um, lobbying, things like the Lung Association and the Heart Association, and they engage through those means. So it's not directly through Maine Health per se, but it's supporting our mission and our goals through these other through these other venues, and oftentimes those other venues provide great networking opportunities and opportunities to build your career and expand at the same time. Um, and Matt, do you have anything to add to that? I just wanted to add, add one piece, um, which uh, maybe I've said, but I'd like to reiterate it, which is um, speaking in unison to the legislature, notwithstanding making a distinctive argument when you need to as to what differentiates you from another healthcare institution in the state, um, but speaking in unison and with your colleagues and stakeholders, I mean, I'm looking at the New Hampshire Hospital Association uh, president CEO right now uh, across the room. Hi, Steve. Um, and lots of other CEOs, in uh, hospital CEOs. And it's vital that you are taking the message together to the legislature because as soon as you start taking a different message to the legislature or the executive, that's it. I mean, you know, okay, because then I have a reason to argue either side of that. Um, and so I just think that's really an important thing that I would reiterate. Right. Yeah. Steve, can we put you on the spot here? We would love to hear how you manage the messaging from your organization. Um, well, uh, thank you, Matt. That was a great uh, kickoff. And I guess just a, a couple of things. Num number one, you know, having a, a consistent message is, is absolutely important. And, and how do you do that? Um, you know, we have 26 hospitals in the state of New Hampshire, all of of whom think alike on every issue um, all the time. Um, you know, so you have to bring people together and continue to talk and, and, and help get to consensus. Um, and, you know, we don't get there on every issue, but, you know, if we keep working, um, there's an understanding of why, why some of these trade-offs are made, and people have a, a willingness to, to do that. Um, I guess just a, a couple of things that I would, would say, um, you know, how much time, you know, do we spend focused on communicating to the legislature? Um, you know, the, there's so much of our revenue, what, what happens in our institutions is dictated by what happens in Concord or in other state capitals or in Washington. Um, and how much time do you spend cultivating, you know, big donors and other, you know, relationships in the community? You spend a lot of time doing that. And how much time do we spend cultivating those relationships with those people who have a significant influence on, on our work. And I'll just use the example of Medicaid expansion, this last uh, legislative session. We had to go through the process of reauthorizing that. And it's not just hospitals. There's lots of other stakeholders that are involved. But for us, it was absolutely a critical outcome to reauthorize that program. And, you know, one of these days, I'd love to have be in, be in, a, in a field where all of our issues aren't controversial or really political, um, but it seems like everything we do has lots of politics associated with it, and that one certainly did. And what was really essential uh, for us was to communicate with legislators back home. You know, before they came to Concord, 
to vote on a piece of legislation, we had to educate them on what was important. Why was Medicaid expansion um, important for their patients, for their communities, for the state? And, you know, that really involved all of our members. And, and we did a lot of work to, to bring doctors and nurses, administrators, trustees in to help educate them so that they could be the spokespersons um, for why this was important in their community. And I'm convinced that had we not been able to do that, we wouldn't have been successful not only on that legislation, but on others. Um, because you know, they, they understood that. When I, when I go talk to a legislator, I'm the, I'm the hired gun, I'm the lobbyist, so of course I'm going to advocate one thing or another. But when their constituent, when that doctor, that administrator, that nurse, that trustee makes that same point, and then I can reinforce it, it really is a, a powerful one-two punch. And so, you know, Matt and others hear me all the time, you know, grassroots advocacy is absolutely essential. And, you know, that is what makes or breaks our ability to be successful um, in Concord and in Washington. So, mm -hmm. you know, I guess my, my pitch and my, my recommendation for all the students is, you know, this is going to be a big part of, of your job um, in being a part of the healthcare system um, to ensure that public policy uh, works for your institution, for your community. Um, and I guess that, that, you know, that's always my frustration. I'm a graduate of a health administration program as well. And I think we spent, you know, half an hour um, in a class talking about advocacy um, and why that was important. Um, to me, I think we need to spend more time um, educating, you know, students, educating future leaders in forums like this and others why that's so important and how come and how that has to be a part of what their job is every day uh, to support their organization. Thank you, Steve. And I, I see we have a question. It, it sounds like you are also saying that you can't leave the policy to the silo of the of the policy people at the institution. That it's really we have to get outside of our usual. Um, way things, way we do things in healthcare. You can't have the nurses just understand nursing and the social workers just understand social work. They really need to get out and understand what the bigger picture is. A absolutely, you know, as government relations officials, um, you know, your job is to help organize and help develop and manage all of those messages and to deliver them. But your job is really to help bring others to help validate what that message is and to to make it more clear um, to help accomplish the objective. Okay. Thank you. Yes, we have a question. Yes, I'm Liz Mary again. Um, I'm actually running for the State House along with 399 times two <laughs> people <laughs> in the state. So I had a message just for the students and um, I met Matt when he was there and I met Steve when I was in the house before and I'm working in a lot of advocacy groups now. But as students, particularly this year, I encourage you to go down to the State House and sit in on the Health and Human Services Committee and listen to what they're debating about. Go to Representative Hall when they have a special meeting on mental health or a health issue and hear the debate. Um, I ran in 2008, lost in 10, but I started to work with advocacy groups around the state. There's the Partnerships for Public Health here. There's a lot of groups where we're working together, and I've continued that because I know the system. So you don't have to sit on the sidelines until you've got a job. You're in a perfect seat right now to get out there and learn and learn the process, and I really encourage you to do that. Thank you. Um, any other questions? 
Yes. Hi, my name is Alexa Trolley Hansen, and I'm a clinical assistant professor here in the occupational therapy department. And my question is, I teach a leadership class, and I'm trying to inspire the future clinicians to own advocacy. And I, you know, something that you said, Katie, really corresponds to what I see is this cynicism and fear about the political process. And I wanted to know if there is anything, any words of wisdom that you had in overcoming that. Um, that is a great question. I, um, I guess the, the piece that I've found, the tactic I've found to be most useful in, in working to overcome the cynicism is backing people up um, to, to something that resonates to them and helping them see how they could have an impact in changing that. Um, for better or for you know to, to, to make a change so um, it it is and I think actually the repre the representatives comments were very well founded connecting uh, clinicians um, or in in this case clinicians to local legislators um, really can help to break down sort of the perception that everything is um, slanted against them, which I think is what's driving a lot of the cynicism. So really bringing it closer to home and developing, and it's really about relationships and developing and building that trust first can help to overcome the cynicism. Um, not as easy to overcome the cynicism of our CEOs, but that's, that's another question <laughs> altogether. But I think at the ground level, um, absolutely, I, I totally agree, grassroots um, is, is the way that you really can drive change, particularly in, in Maine and New Hampshire, in our legislatures, where we have very citizen-based legislatures. So uh, every legislator really is a, just a community member, and connecting them and connecting our clinicians to their communities can help them see the importance of their voice in, in making change. Thank you. Either of you want to, our, our optimistic CFO? Yeah, <laughs> capable of pessimism right. and skepticism. Right. Um, I would say, uh, I would echo everything you said. Typically, you know, you have to have passion about something, and if you have passion about it, have a point of view, and then just communicate that point of view. So I have uh, social workers, or I have a physician that comes to me and says, look at this, you know, they call it food insecurity or housing insecurity. And as you start to think about um, healthcare reform and, 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 and expansion of coverage and the sustainability of that, um, you need people who will come forward and say these things are kind of, kind of you know, Maslow's hierarchy, basic human needs. And have you thought about, you know, uh, maybe investing in some housing um, projects or development, or how would we move our food pantry out? Or would you fund a demonstration kitchen, which we have, to te actually teach people how to cook? And um, so those kinds of things come to you, and you say, well, of course we want to do those kinds of things. And then I'll work with uh, my government affairs person, or I'll work with my development officer. And uh, when you're talking about societal needs, it tugs at people's heartstrings. Um, and if you can tell that story, uh, there's a lot of people who will listen to that kind of thing. So I think, you know, is really be passionate, don't give up, have a point of view, 
be part of the change. Um, if you be part of the change you want to see, and that's a basic message to the students in this room as well. Did you have a question? Sure. So, a uh, two-part question. Um, uh, Mark Bonica from UNH, just in case you don't know. Um, so, uh, if you could, uh, if you could change one thing, so if you could bypass the legislative process and change one policy, what would it be? And part two of that question would be, who would who would object to that change, and why? See, he asked the academic questions. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Can we have one state policy and one federal policy? Uh, that's up to us. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, go. go. What would it be? So I have two. So I have one at the state. Uh, I would I would expand Medicaid in Maine. No question about it. Um, it is really hurting us not to have. It's hurting our patients that they do not have access to health insurance, um, and it's our most vulnerable patients who are below 100 percent of the poverty level. Um, at the federal level, um, I, the, the policy I would change right now is uh, a kind of a technical policy. It's the hospital outpatient department uh, law that passed just in November. Um, it's in the process of rulemaking right now. But in Maine, uh, Maine has really relied upon um, employing our physicians to provide our hospitals employ our physicians so we have the highest rate of employed physicians in the country and that and we've done that because it provides access to all of our citizens we serve everyone from primary care through neurosurgery regardless of their ability to pay one of the ways that we've been able to um, to make that work for us financially is through um, hospital-based reimbursement for our for our physician services. So from Medicare, get, is it? For Medicare, sorry, yes. Um, so the hospital-based uh, payments are give us a bump of about 25 to 30 percent over what those physicians would get if they were in freestanding um, private practice. That has subsidized the cost of care for the uninsured in Maine. And because we have an expanded Medicaid, we have a lot of uninsured in Maine, a lot of people who have Medicaid and Medicare. So the federal government, in all of its wisdom, just decided to end that policy, and they're, they're really ratcheting back on our ability to access those additional funds. And I'm very concerned about the impact that's going to have on our mission as at Maine Health to serve all of our patients regardless of ability to pay, and I would change that yeah, policy. Thanks, Katie. You know, just to tie it to our, our classes we're teaching, we talk a lot about what if the Affordable Care Act doesn't work and actually services don't be become overall more affordable, and you'll see more and more of the Medicare decisions that are, are impacting Maine Health come about um, probably by proxy. Um, but that's an aside. So, so Matt, if you could change, if you could change one thing. Well, I, um, governor's term four years. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's great. I wouldn't even think of that one. Um, I think I could, need a constitutional amendment. Um, yeah, I'm going to take the I'm going to take the road of the make Medicaid expansion reauthor make it permanent in New Hampshire, not uh, not a Groundhog Day that we do every two years. Um, uh, that's what I would do in New Hampshire. On the federal level, I think I would allow Medicare to negotiate with um, pharmaceuticals. Um, strikes me as one way to address some of the healthcare uh, cost explosion. Um, yeah. Thank you. 
Um, I, we I could spend an entire day on pharmaceutical costs, yeah. but we, we'll just leave with From that. where I sit at uh, Boston Medical Center, I don't know how you go about this, but uh, it's a rather draconian, blunt instrument of redetermination for the federal match for Medicaid. You're dealing with a population that doesn't have the means to reapply every two years or every year, and invariably, most of them end up back in Medicaid. So it's a, I understand they want to make sure they're paying for things appropriately, but there's got to be a better way. The other, I would say, is that the feds and the state need to get clear on what it is they're trying to do with the population and communicate it to the population. This whole notion of an ACO through attribution, you're in a managed care yes. organization, in order to have consistent costs, consistent quality, consistent outcomes, you can't have variation in approach, but go ahead and go anywhere. Um, we need to be realistic that if you want population health management, you have to be honest enough to tell people that you're going to be in a system of care. We have not done that. No. And so, um, you know, and, and, they, and what they tend to do is chisel at the edges, whether it be a facility fee for an off-site uh, campus that they want to chisel at, or they put the patient in the middle and say, you're not an inpatient, even though you were there for three days, you are an observation outpatient, therefore you don't have benefits for your skilled nursing facility. So if we're really going to pivot towards population health, we have to pivot towards population health. In Massachusetts, 25% of the population is on Medicaid. It's 40% of the state budget, growing at 4 to 5% a year. You don't have to be Aristotle to recognize that's not sustainable. So the government has to become, really be a truth in advertising in terms of what we're going to do. It doesn't have to be perhaps a uh, Canadian health system or a British health system, but they have to know that they're in a health system. And I guess that's what I would say. Thank you. So our next symposium is going to be how do we make this happen? No, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. So I, I, um, I can't thank you all enough. Um, we've come to the end of our time, sadly. There's so much more to discuss. Um, thank you, each one of you, for coming um, uh, from far and near. Um, and, you know, Lebanon is almost as far as Boston. So, uh, and, and all of you for participating, please stay around. We have a wonderful lunch uh, session. Mike, I don't know if you want to say something about it, but we have Lewis Josephson here from Brattleboro Retreat who's going to be speaking at lunch. He was uh, here in New Hampshire for a while, integrated into mental health services, and then left and is now back. So we're very excited to have him. Um, Mark, uh, you've been a maestro. Thank you for uh, coordinating this morning's session for us. Um, and I'll end it here. Logistics, we're going to have, is the food out there now? Food is available now. So we're going to uh, ask you to go ahead and get your lunch, come back, uh, do some more networking with the students. Uh, and we're going to ask Lewis to begin his talk at about 12.30. And that'll give us, we have the room until 2. Um, but uh, if you would go ahead now, get your lunch, and come back, and we'll plan to start the uh, Lewis's address at, at 1230. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. 
Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.